Hello, Ringo and the All-Stars. I'm Thomas from RockMusicStar.com. And uh, my question is, uh, what is the audition process like to be in the All-Stars? <laughs> uh, they, all, they, all, they all audition me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's just a... Uh, he, Richard decides, Ringo decides we like to have the band and the, uh, the, the songs or the hits. And everybody up here has, got great, has great songs. Um, there's really no audition, I don't believe, right? No, the current, there's no audition. The criterion is that you've had a hit sometime this, this or the last century. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think, oh, I need a keyboard, I need a guitar, and uh, oh, I need a bass player. I need someone wacky on the far end. And, you know, that's how I put it together, really. I mean, there's a lot of management sending names of musicians. I feel some musicians and some musicians mention it. And I just have to sit there in the end and say, well, I think that would be a great combination for bringing on the All-Stars. And then, uh, you know, everyone's contacting. Then we meet up here, and I don't know if it's going to work the day before we get here, but so far, for the last 23 years, it's worked. So this is what we do. But I'm surrounded here with incredible musicians. If I may interject. Could go wrong, and incredible writers and incredible songs. You know? And everybody knows who's come to see Bring On The All Stars that we are the best 1-800 band in the land. <laughs> and we are, because we are the band. We're not my band, his band, even his band. No, it takes forever, one of those stories. We are all up there. And it was pointed out we did uh, South America, just the best line I ever heard. We're doing South America, and this other well-known musician who was there said, Oh, how great. No side men. Because right. <laughs> everybody loved. Welcome to this week's Wednesday with Fab. I'm Ed Chan. I'm John Stowe. Well, John, I did indeed receive my copy of uh, Thorsten Nubloch's book, Machshaw in Hamburg, The Beatles. Everything you could possibly want to know. Pretty much. It, it is indeed more or less 540 pages, every page packed with uh, a contract, a document, a letter, or a transcription of a letter. You know, right. pretty amazing stuff. And Two burned condoms. Well, I, I, he didn't quite <laughs> find the condoms, though. So. Well, 
Looks like there'll be a sequel. I haven't finished reading it. Maybe if he did find the uh, spot on the wall, they haven't painted it <laughs> over yet. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Notes on John Lennon's refrigerator. There were two stories in there, one of which answers a question which we had last week, and another of which I find really pretty amazing. Yes, do tell. You know, we mentioned last week that Ringo was actually in Hamburg, in Tony Sheridan's band before the flood in the early months of 1962. So Tony got the entire Beatles, just not all at once. But Thorsten has a, a transcript of a letter where Ringo had written to his family, you know, saying, oh, by the way, I appeared on TV last Saturday with Tony Sheridan and Roy Young. And Tony was promoting his single. My Bonnie. That was the single off of his new release. And so Ringo got to perform that as well. Well, it, it should be noted that uh, they probably didn't have the capability to uh, mic the bands properly. So they were probably miming to the record. Right. Which is just absolutely hilarious to me. <laughs> Right. So not only did you get the Beatles backing being played on this TV show, in all likelihood, now the uh, there are no copies, either audio or video of the TV show, but he did find comparable ones from the era, so he, he's, he felt confident in saying that they were probably miming to the record. That makes sense. I mean, you'd want your best performance, and particularly, you know, something that was performed by a quartet is now being performed by a trio. But what that means in particular is that Ringo was up there miming to Pete's drum track on My Bonnie. (laughs) That's kind of an amazing thing. And funny. (laughs) It's kind of funny. And very funny. Yeah, it's uh, strange because Pete's drumming on that single is not stellar. And I'm sure that was obvious. We told the story last week uh, about them taking away pieces of his drum kit as they went on. It's like, nope, don't want that. Don't want that. Don't want that. Okay, right. here you go. Here's a drumstick and a snare. <laughs> so that's, that is kind of odd. I'm not sure that's very well known at all. I never even knew that the, uh, Tony was still on TV, but uh, apparently he was. And I also didn't know that my Bonnie was being promoted quite that much, even in Germany. Well, you know, it was a project of Burt Camfort, and so I, I assume, I mean, he was a player in the in the industry. So it, it wasn't just a, a vanity single that Tony put out, I and mean, it had a backing of the label. And then the other story from the book, uh, you know, we, we were questioning last week, why exactly did Brian either allow or... Uh, pushed the Beatles to go to Germany three times in 62, and he pretty strongly felt that they were going to be something big by the end of the year. Yes. Well, it turns out he had an incentive. There is a letter dated February the 22nd, 1962, from Horst Foscher to Brian, and it should be noted that uh, that Horst and Peter Eckhorn were fighting amongst each other to actually get the Beatles back in uh, late March, early April of 62. Yes. And, you know, when you look at the timeline of things, February 62, I mean, he had only been managing the group for eight weeks, perhaps. The contract hadn't even been through all the legal process. So he actually 
probably hadn't started getting paid from them yet. Right, and this is this was a chance to get paid. <laughs> so, yeah, at, towards the bottom of this letter, Horst writes to uh, Brian, uh, should there be some extra times when your band is not yet booked for this year, please enter my name. As far as yourself is concerned, we can sign another contract on the same basis as before, if you know what I mean. <laughs> nudge, nudge, wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and and again, uh, you know, go, looking at the history of what Horst did with other promoters, that basically meant uh, a thousand Deutschmarks under the table to Brian in order to bring them in each time. Well, you know, his business model always included that. Uh, he was taking what I think was referred to as paper bag money as late as you know nineteen sixty six. So that was part of how he worked. And the Beatles themselves were only being paid uh, 500 Deutschmarks per man per week, of which Brian took 15%. Right. Some of it may be kind of sort of questionable, but when you consider how the story evolved, you know, he, he wasn't really... Oh, no, I, I don't blame Brian, it, although it does kind of bring slightly into question, you know, we like to view Brian as this completely straight-laced, oh, he wouldn't uh, pull the wings off a fly kind of guy. Well, maybe he, he there was a little bit of, uh, he was a real person. Yes, and, you know, that is wrapped up in the story of him purchasing copies of Love Me Do, um, to help the, the record in the charts. You know, he, he knew there was this business game and he was certainly willing to play in that. I, that will, will bring us into our topic, but I do want to say uh, it, it's an amazing book. Uh, if, you, if you've seen the, uh, the Gunderson books on the U.S. tour, uh, Some Fun Tonight, it's every bit the equal in terms of amount of documentation that he's managed to get. And this is on a much harder era to find documentation. Right. This is a man who was there and, and had access to sources and paperwork. So it's yeah, exactly. But uh, it will stand as probably the best document of the Hamburg era. If you liked our show last week and want to know the whole story, there it is. At your local bookshop. Well, uh, you have to order it from the fella. And uh, it ain't cheap, but it's not outrageously expensive. Shipping to the States is uh, a little more than I'd like, but oh well. I think we have probably seen the last of inexpensive Beatles stuff. <laughs> 540 pages, hardback, uh, that's probably, you know, four or five pounds. Oh, wow, yeah. Okay. So, ain't cheap. Right. So, anyway, so there is no good segue this week. I, you know, I guess Ringo... Um, we wanted to do a, a Ringo show since we're going to be doing yet more Paul and George very soon here with All Things Must Pass and with the McCartney 321 TV special before we hit Get Back, which is going to now at six weeks over Thanksgiving, we'll, we'll be going well into <laughs> next year with Get Back. <laughs> yes, probably. <laughs> but uh, one thing we've only talked tangentially about is uh, Ringo and the All-Star Band. Right. That's been a great project. I've seen them a couple of times, and while it was the same, it was completely different, and that was so cool. It's kind of a shame that Ringo 
has more or less settled on a unit that he likes, although he, you know, he changed out a couple guys uh, of late. Uh, Todd Rundgren left, and he brought in uh, Hamish. Hamish. Hamish Stewart. Yeah, Hamish Stewart. Ladies and gentlemen, all the way from Glasgow, Scotland, just down the road from Mrs. Logan's Butcher Shop, founding member of Average White Band and present-day King of Scotland, Mr. Hamish Stewart. I say, did you hear me say that it was Hamish Stewart? Thank you, Colin. My Majesty. (laughs) Whatever. I had to wait for Idi Amin to die, though. They said you gotta have it. Um, I'd like to play a tune for you right now that was written just a couple of miles from here, over in a, in a house above Franklin, in which we lived in in 1973 for about three months where we wrote all these tunes, and this was one of them for uh, the first Atlantic album. It's, uh, I'm sure you recognize it. If you don't, you recognize it somehow, because you probably subliminally heard it somewhere. Uh, And if you don't know it, you don't recognize it, then you're probably from Area 51. But I won't say anything. last decade or so just about he's only had one or two real significant changes in band before that he would change it up every couple of years right i guess he's still playing with steve luthaker yeah the rest of the band uh, greg bissonette and steve luthaker and warren ham those guys are all still in the all-stars right well it was a good band you know um and sometimes Todd can be the the Neil Young of the you know, he he goes from project to project and he always has. He was with the All Stars for two years back towards the beginning, like the fifth or the sixth All Stars, and he wasn't there for a long time. Then he came back and he actually stuck with it for about six years. I mean, it helps that it's five or six weeks every summer. It's not like an extensive tour. Right. The last time that Ringo was here, Todd was in fact. At the same venue by himself three weeks after he left town. <laughs> the last time Ringo was here, he actually played out at Sugarland. Good evening, Houston! Peace and love! You ready to have some fun? Are you ready to listen to some good music? Are you ready to listen to songs at least one of you will know? Next one, it don't come easy. One of the times that we saw him, we were both at the show, although we weren't together, was at an outdoor venue here in uh, what used to be the amusement park, the Six Flags Park here in town. Oh, oh those many years ago. Yes, I, I saw him. Yeah, and, and the thing about that venue is uh, you, you, there are photos and you can see Barbara... <laughs> Storing these cold towels to put around Ringo's neck (laughs) when he got off stage. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Welcome to Houston. And it was like right in the middle of summer. This was like in August. And Ringo's well-known aversion to the heat. He must have been very unhappy. Yeah, I can remember Jack Bruce was part of that band. 
And I remember thinking he may pass out because he was sweating so bad. It was, just, it was a hot day for all those guys from Britain. And then the first time uh, Ringo was here in town, the that's the one that uh, that Zach was on with him. Ah, didn't see that. Uh, that was at the Arena Theater. It's the third time Ringo has teamed up with some of his famous colleagues. This version of the band includes Randy Bachman from the Bachman Turner Overdrive, Felix Cavallari from the Rascals, the Who's John Entwistle, and the legendary keyboard player Billy Preston. I saw Todd play with a configuration called Abbey Road, or a show dedicated to the Beatles called Abbey Road, sometime, might have been 97, 98. Well, and, and as as we mentioned, uh, our friend and guest, Darren Murphy, was drummer with Todd on the uh, White Album Tour right. Uh, just right before COVID hit. That's cool. <laughs> well, we kind of decided, well, well, first thing we decided is that, that Ringo has to do something to make up for uh, embarrassing Joss Stone with the Who's Your Daddy. <laughs> Out of the three things I sang first, one was Who's Your Daddy? Who's Your Daddy? And I wanted, and uh, Bruce Sugar knew Joss, who was in town. So I said, well, maybe she'd like to come over, because I wanted it to be, a, you know, the girl singing, and then I have my line, who's your daddy? And I wanted it to be a little, like, in a bad space. And she came over. It was a great experience. She was quick. We had fun. But she was a bit pissed off with the boyfriend at the time. So it worked a treat. You know, you couldn't ask. You couldn't a, make that method, up. You know what I mean? She was like, oh, damn, right. you know, at the time. And so we were writing away and she was getting all that out. And then I would be, who's your daddy? <laughs> so what we're going to suggest to him is that uh, he go out with an alternate all-star band, an all-female all-star band. Yes. And it's not as easy to put one together as you might think. No, you know, because you certainly can find some, you know, great players, but the whole construct of the uh, all-star band is that they bring their songs, what, what it is they do, to the whole thing. And so if you have Stevie Nicks, all she would bring is vocals. Well, there's that, and there's the fact that there's kind of a ceiling on exactly how big an act is allowed to be. Ringo doesn't want anyone who will come that close to overshadowing him. Right. Frampton was big, but again, he wasn't going to overshadow Ringo on that tour. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'll see you soon. Okay, whenever he's uh, ready, I'd like to hand you back to the remarkable, the Mr. Peter Frampton. Thank you very much. It's great to be back here. Don't sit down. I just stood up. He's kind of had a little bit of a comeback since then, even. Yeah, uh, you know, Jack Brooker, you know, Paul Procol Harum, he's big but not huge. Right. I think uh, he only sang Watershed of Pale and Conquistador. You know, I think probably the the biggest, well, there's Todd, but, you know, again, even Todd is not really 
a big rock star. No, I mean, he's, he is, he's but, got a whole different vibe for sure. The ones that I would say were probably the biggest would be uh, from the first all-star band. You know, you the guys from the band, and then you had Clarence Clements. Those were all pretty big names. Right. So there's a, a ceiling for rock stars, and then there's this and the glass ceiling that has not been broken. <laughs> there's been one woman, and I think we're, we, we, we're both going to say bring her back. And this young lady on the left hand of God... is incredibly talented, as I was saying. A dynamic drummer, a scintillating soloist, a preeminent percussionist. When it comes to the Latin rhythm thing, she's really got it going on. It is the real deal. A sensational singer and songwriter and charismatic performer. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for the electrifying one and only Sheila E. Thank you. How's everybody doing? All right. Right. This was where I started having trouble. I mean, you know, there are other female drummers out there, but I wouldn't want to put like Debbie Peterson or or Gina Shock in this band. Well, particularly because uh, I'm thinking of some other members of their bands that would probably fit better. Right, the, the the person who's bringing the songs <laughs> is the way I kind of looked at it. Someone who, were she still alive, would be perfect in a drummer in an all-star band would be like Karen Carpenter. Right. In that alternate future where she lived to be here with us. Right. So that's our first choice. And the other one that I thought of was, was Meg White, but the White Stripes, as generally popular as they are, they don't really have... The, anything that I would consider a song you know and love. Right. It's certainly no song that she performs. Yeah, exactly. That, that's what really stopped me was like, well, so, you know, there's people who you could name, but what song would they bring into this? That They have to perform it. So we're, we're going with Sheila E and she's got glamorous life. Right. And she's got some of the stuff from Prince and, you know, and she, and she's been in the all-stars. So that's great. Right. So there, there's our drummer. Now, the bass player, uh, I went with uh, Kathy Valentine from the Go-Go's. Who is certainly a good bass player. But I thought about it. It's like, um, one, she's not going to bring any songs. Well, she's got vacation and she's got we got the beat, even though she didn't actually write it and she's not the lead singer but you look at Ringo's playing Santana songs that uh, Carlos <laughs> Santana sang originally on so right well I thought my choice is Amy Mann does this voice sound familiar back in 1985 Amy Mann and her band Till Tuesday went from playing small Boston clubs to the top of the charts with Voices Carry that's a very interesting choice you know a really good bass player she would bring voices carry and love in a vacuum and believed you were lucky you know three really strong songs and the other person i thought about you know we could do honorable mention would be uh, tina weymouth from talking heads 
Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth um, posited this idea that women are drawn to the bass because it's a naturally nurturing role. Oh, please. I don't think it has anything to do with gender, and it's one of the reasons I, I don't... I've always eschewed answering feminist questions. It's just such... it's so loaded. If you want to do something, just do it. Don't talk about it. I'm familiar with her, but not that familiar with her. Does she sing lead on anything? No, that that was kind of an honorable mention. Once I okay. thought of Amy Mann, it was like, okay, that's really going to be my choice because she's she yeah, fills I, th I think all. either of those work. Uh, the other thing about Kathy Valentine is she fits in with some of my other choices. She's based out of Texas, and her current band when she's not doing nostalgia with the go-go's is uh, is called the blue bonnets and they are a tremendous band and she's actually lead there i've seen them in the clubs around here oh half a dozen times that's a development i wasn't aware of they're based out of austin and another all-female band uh, it's a much bluesier less poppy act than the go-go's were yeah she always came off that way you know she was Certainly the Go-Go's, the, the punkiest. Yeah, and she started out as a guitar player. So another another plus for her, you know, we, we, all, we like guitar players who turn into bass players. When she joined the band, that was the first time she picked up the bass. And she took, uh, well, she took some chemical enhancement and just powered through uh, this tape and learning all these songs on the bass, which she'd never played before. That's wild. And it was enough that, you know, she was ready for the first show with the rest of the band. And with the proper chemical inducement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can't do that again unless. <laughs> so, okay, now we're on to, to sort of the big end of things. Uh, you know, uh, I would say three or four either keyboard or guitar players uh, who can sing as well. I've got several guitar players. You know, he normally has two guitar players in the band. There's certainly two guitar players always. Sometimes there's even a third, and then there's usually someone who can double on keyboards. Right. Yeah, so some of the guitar players I picked have to do with, well, that would be cool to hear her play on that song, you know, as well. So... We'll each name one, and uh, the first who I had already alluded to, uh, Susanna Hoffs. Meet the Beatles, 1964, age five. Um, my brother's best friend's aunt worked at Capitol. We got the record. We listened to it in the living room on that little thing. That little, not a stereo, just a one-piece thing. They were the coolest thing. They were everything. They were life. They were just the thing to... The most exciting thing, and once they went to a party, I think it was the party that Peter Fonda was at, you know, in Brentwood, because I grew up in Brentwood, which is like a nice neighborhood, and um, there was a party down the street, and like there was like cops all over the place, and we were like little kids, about seven, six, seven, eight, trying to figure out what was going on, but the rumor was that the Beatles were at this party, and I bet they were. We were obsessed with them. <laughs> After I graduated college, I came back to L.A. I had to put a band together. Susanna Hoffs from the Bangles. You know, the, the lead singer from the Bangles. She's also a guitar player. You know, she brings in all those Bangles songs. Uh, right. Uh, Walk Like an Egyptian. But uh, see, I thought about this. is part one of the things I was thinking. I don't think Ringo would enjoy playing uh, Walk Like an Egyptian. I don't know. But I do uh, think that he would like Manic Monday. And going down to Liverpool. Or Hazy Shade of Winter, I thought, would be. Uh, Hazy Shade of Winter, which is another cover. 
But that would be interesting. Yeah. But that could also be the song that Ringo takes off because, you know, he, he does usually take off a couple songs in the middle of the show. <laughs> right. When you're 81 or. <laughs> you're yeah. allowed. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That would be my first choice, you know, and I don't think she's too big. And if have you heard any of the Under the Cover stuff that she's done, those albums? I have heard things from it. Yeah, she's done three records with Matthew Sweet right. where they cover 160s, 170s, and 180s. Right. And so they, they do they do Rain and they they do a Lennon song, they do a Harrison song along the way. So, I mean, she is clearly a big Beatles fan and she can play all that stuff. <laughs> right. And Cool Voice has a beautiful lilting quality that's, that's really great. So that, that's my first choice. Well, my, my choice, one of my choices, would be Chrissy Hine. Ringo is now at work on a new CD due out this spring with guest artists like Chrissy Hine. From the Pretenders, she's got uh, guitar chops and great voice. You know, you talk about the contrast in Chrissy's voice and Susanna's voice. It would be really cool. And she brings an energy, I think. Um, I picked three songs from her catalog, which would be Brass and Pocket. I'd love to hear Ringo play on that. Uh, Back on the Chain Gang and Middle of the Road. And she probably knows Ringo. Uh, you know, she probably. she's good friends, or she was good friends with Linda McCartney, and she still hangs out in Paul's circles. The one thing you never know about all these things, though, is like, what if there's one of these great fits, and she and Ringo just didn't get on? <laughs> the downside of that is you're going to have to listen to her give at least a five-minute spiel somewhere along the way about how eating meat is evil. <laughs> Paul's a vegetarian, and we'll let you know. She's a vegetarian, we'll let you know, and give you a little sermon on why you really shouldn't be doing that. Right, well. But, you know, Linda and I, well, all conversations always led back to animal rights, and, you know, she was as nuts as I am about it. And, you know, Paul's just such a sweetheart. And Well, nothing wrong with that, but, I mean, that goes against Ringo's uh, fun-for-all-the-family attitude. You're right. Well, you know... He wouldn't be beyond saying no, no stuff like that on this. No, we're, we're not going to let you do it. But then, then would she go on the tour? <laughs> right. I don't think she's too big. No, I don't think so. So that brings up the, my second here, and she might be too big, and that's Cheryl Crow. Out to Cable. She is a multi-instrumentalist. Uh, you know, she's got songs galore. Right. But my only question there is, is she is she too big? I don't think she's any bigger than Todd is, just in terms of uh, profile as a, as a rock star. Right. No, I think she's kind of perfect. He plays with musicians who are experienced and qualified and accomplished, and I, I think that 
and Cheryl Crow showed up at the uh, the David Lynch the, the TM thing at Madison Square several years back right. the, the Paul and Ringo reunion they played uh, Paul's cosmically conscious the, the long version ah so she's she's also TM friendly for whatever that's worth <laughs> that becomes a qualifying thing yeah and she's got some great songs one of the things that I kept running into is a lot of these people are, are 70s, 80s, basically. And a lot of music from that time is so metronomy that I'm not sure that's, you know, Ringo would necessarily be interested in playing some of that stuff. Yeah, but I mean, you know, you talk about Mr. Mister. I couldn't have ever imagined Ringo playing any of that material. Right. Or even the Toto stuff would have been a little bit like, are you sure Ringo would want to play that? You know, Africa, that's really? Who's the drummer on that? On that tour? Where he that's that's Greg Bissonnette. Greg, yes, that's right. Well, didn't he cover most of that work? Uh, well, I mean, they're, they're double drumming. Right. So as far as Shell Crow songs, Soak Up the Sun, I could see Ringo doing that. Yeah. Maybe All I Want to Do. Could be, if it makes you happy. That's... Every Day is a Winding Road. Yeah, I bet you'd like that one. It's kind of what I said at the start here. She's got tons of songs, and I think they're all songs that she is very much in the mold of the, the 60s artist. She likes real drums. She doesn't like the, the metronome. The, right. And, and she doesn't tend to go for the electronic drum sound. Right. Good voice. And she also brings a little bit of country to the act, which I think Ringo would be into. <laughs> that, that's how all that works. Yes, you're right. <laughs> My, my only question was whether she would be too big for uh, the all-star band. But even if she were, I think she'd do it, honestly. Yeah. Just because she's such a big Beatles fan. Yeah. Who wouldn't want to go on tour with, with the Beatles? Did you have, have one more here? Yeah, actually a couple. One would be uh, Joan Jett. It's a great honor uh, for me to be able to induce him. Oh, induct. Yeah. Okay. Into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame here in Cleveland tonight, Mr. Ringo Starr! It's a great honor to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Honor to induct Joan Jett into the legendary Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It was overwhelming. There was so much that I could say, and she has had a life in music that is rare. I come from a place where rock and roll means something. It means more than music more than fashion, more than a good pose. It's the language of a subculture that has been made eternal teenagers of all who follow it. If Ringo wanted to go a little bit more rock. Right, and some of those songs are just great drum. I, mean, I love the rock and roll, and, uh, Crimson and Clover. And, and she has a different voice from the others and certainly has a certain swagger. I mean, I could just see Joe Jett and Chrissy Hine on stage together. It's just be like, that's that's great. And then uh, Cindy Lauper. That would be interesting. I think Ringo would have a blast on girls just want to have fun. I started singing and busking on the streets when I was a kid. And I feel very proud to be part of this event here tonight. The real Strawberry Fields was a Salvation Army orphanage around the block from where John Lennon used, where he grew up, actually. And, um... Since 1985, Strawberry Fields has become a place in Central Park where people come 
And I just want to say before we begin here tonight that the world is still a very beautiful place, and so is this great city. And I think that's a very positive thought to hold. And John Lennon was a very positive man. So I just wanted you to hold that thought near to you as we all come together. She does a great song called Money Changes Everything. And Time After Time is a great song. So there's several songs she can pull from. you know. And then the last person who I picked, great guitar player, is Nancy Wilson. From Heart. But how did it all begin? You know, where women weren't playing a lot of rock guitar when you began. What was your what was the first moment that you really even wanted to pick up a guitar? Well, you know, what was it, 1963, when the Beatles aired on Ed Sullivan, or four, three or four, and uh, it was like, you know, Mom, Mom, can we have guitars? You know, so we were begging and begging, and uh, got some guitars, and. Then it was like the male bay chord book. You know, it was like, this is an E, and this is an A. And um, just learned the chords. But really, because I guess we had a lot of music in our family, um, was able to pick up stuff by ear, like Beatles songs mainly. And at that point, we're, we had every Beatle album. And really good guitarist. She, she'll bring uh, dreams. That's a little bit harder rocking than I think Ringo tends to go. Uh, it would be interesting to see her play boys and uh, I want to be your man. <laughs> right. <laughs> She's accomplished guitar yeah, Ringo, player. Ringo has had hard rocking guitar players in there before. I mean, Frampton. Right. Nils Lofgren. Nils Lofgren, yep. Although Nils was more sort of uh, the the bandish, you know, the, the country folk end of things at that point than... Yeah, than, but than the hard rocking guitar. But he could play it. I mean, he. But he could he, play it absolutely. Yeah, he's got a history. So those are the guitar players that. I had two others, which I would say pick one, and that's uh, Bonnie Raitt and Melissa, Melissa Etheridge. They're a little bit similar, so right. it's like one or the other. Personal preference, I would pick Bonnie Raitt. And I, I could very much see Ringo having fun playing like something to talk about. Yes, it's got that kind of funk thing that. So yeah, I can see that. Good choice. The only other thing, Ringo likes to have a horn player. Currently, he's got uh, Warren Ham on tour with him. At the very beginning, he had uh, Clarence Clements, uh, and they had the Mark Rivera from Billy Joel's uh, band. You know how hard it is to find a, a female horn player? Yes, because I didn't. <laughs> I, I found one. She played with uh, Aerosmith. Really? Mindy Abair. Okay. And she's really good.
she does a Brady song, does she? Warren Ham doesn't have a solid right. spot. Uh, you know, he's kind of a utility guy, right? So yeah, we haven't covered keys yet. Well, okay. I mean, Cheryl Crow is a keyboard player. She's kind of the multi-instrumentalist, but I would say if you include her in an iteration of the All-Star Band, she would probably end up being a keyboard player, particularly if you've got an electric guitar in like Susanna Haas and a, uh, an acoustic guitar in like Bonnie Raitt. Okay. Did you have a separate keyboard player? I mean, you know, again, the, the nice thing about the All-Stars is you're not limited. It's not, they. it must be four people or five people or six people. Right. Ringo could have nine people up there and he doesn't care as, as long as the sound is, is all right. Absolutely. Well, my number one pick was Kate Pearson for the B-52s. Wow. Uh, and Ringo could do a cover birthday and she could do Yoko's part in the middle thing. Yeah. I, you know, she, yeah. yeah. I was, but she's got... Some great songs that I think, you know, Ringo doing Love Shack or, or Rome. Yeah, the problem there is who would sing the the male half of, uh, of like, Love Shack? Well, you know, she sings half of the song. Yes. Yeah, well, you know, who knows? Uh, R- Ringo's definitely not going to be doing the... <laughs> no. You don't think? Well, there are other songs, too. So, uh... We got a little bit of time here, so we wanted to go back to to one other thing that that we did find out about this week. Our friend Lord Reith, the the very same gentleman who put out the de-echoed version of the Star Club tapes, has uh, let the world know that uh, he has been approached with eight new minutes of Beatles on the BBC from 1962. That's just incredible. That even exists. You think everything's been found, and it's like, nope, here's some more. Here's some more, yeah. And, and it's not just any random eight minutes. This is, you know, a pretty historical piece of audio here. It's the, the first appearance of the the four Beatles on, on BBC. Recorded on October the 25th and aired the following day. The name of the program was Here We Go. And I can remember years ago reading the fact that they did this on a particular date and the author saying that recording is long lost, never to be heard. And here it is. And it also ties into our show last week because, well, they were just on the verge of returning to Hamburg for that final trip when they were doing this. This is one of one of the few bits of promotion they actually got to do for Love Me Do. Right. Yeah, it was uh, had to have been a frustrating time for them because... Uh, because Brian needed that extra thousand Deutschmarks. <laughs> well, by their time, you know, they had a contract and he believed in... Honoring contracts, yes, but, but still, it didn't hurt. Yeah. I mean, you know, what's coming up is going to be a series of dates and appearances based on contracts that were made before they were particularly famous. And by the time they were actually going to do those particular dates, we're talking, you know, early to mid 63, they had become huge in, in England and could have asked for much more money. But Epstein always insisted that he was going to honor the contract. Well, all the way through. I mean, you know, they were they were underpaid for Australia for that tour. They got them cheap because they sent the contracts over early. Right. 
And just to continue with the Hamburg thing, uh, so the on that final trip, the the Beatles were paid uh, 750 Deutschmarks per man per week for that for that December trip. When they returned to Hamburg in '66, it was a hundred thousand Deutschmarks. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty great. Love Me Do was at number 27 on the charts when, when the Beatles recorded this show. And, and they perform it. So so the, the question, which will be answered, well, you know, uh, we do have the uh, at least the a piece of uh, a TV appearance that the Beatles had had the week before. So it was after the single had been recorded and before this radio show. And you're saying, you know, Ringo plays an odd beat which resembles pete's sort of skip beat you were saying you don't think it's quite the same in love me do i'd like to hear a longer portion to see if it's repeated because it strikes me as more of a way to kind of catch up in the the way the beat is and he just does it for i think two measures he goes back to the beat but it's not the the intentional skip beat that that Pete played. I don't think. So you think it's just sort of uh, either the band got ahead of him or behind him, and right. they had to get back and sing. Right. That, that's what it sounds like to me. And and since it was a a live or a one take TV show, there was no going back and fixing it. <laughs> yeah, it is what it is. Uh, um, as I said, the the telling will be to hear longer piece of it and see if well, it actually is supposedly efficient. that whole performance is out there somewhere but it's it's not out there for for us general public to uh to get our ears on apparently it's in the uh high-end trading circles amazing so so but it will be telling does ring does anything like that happen here or is- since they were with us last have been doing very nicely indeed and to prove it, here they come with a number they recently wrote and recorded. And standing at number 27 this week is Love Me Do. And along with it, our guest, The Beatles. There's Ringo just playing it straight like he did on the record. If it is duplicated, it becomes a planned part. This is, you know, something they had decided to do. And that is interesting to me, that choice. Well, you know, why do it and then take it out? I mean, you know, they didn't do it on the record. If, if they did it live, or at least they did it live twice, then why would they then decide, well, I, no, I guess it didn't work. It worked better the first way. Right. A little bit strange, if you ask me. It is. I think I prefer your hypothesis that it was just something that happened. Yes, I, it just is. It's not right. <laughs> um. So we'll we'll see when we get a chance to to hear this tape. But the uh, the other thing about uh, this show, you got Ringo playing "P.S. I Love You" because, of course, he didn't play on the B side either. That's right. That's a, a different beat. It's that Latin beat. Uh, and then the other thing that, that Lord Reith tells us on his notes, uh, the version of "Taste of Honey" at the Star Club, Paul sings an extra verse. Ah. Uh from the recorded version and from all subsequent BBC versions. Huh. You know, I, I think with the exception of like the Hollywood strings, the Beatles version of it is the only one I 
really know. I know it's from a Broadway show, but I don't think I've ever heard that version. Since we haven't heard it, but Lord Reeves is telling us that, yes, Paul does indeed perform the extra verse here. Hmm. So he cut it between this performance and, well, okay, so I guess this would have been before the Star Club performance, wouldn't it have been? It was in October, yes. October the 25th, so so he, he did it that way here, he did it that way at the Star Club, then he cut the verse before they recorded it on, for the album. Nothing earth-shattering, but it's just kind of interesting. Yeah, that was probably a, a producer's choice. You think George Martin would have, would have done that? Yeah, probably would have said. Let's, let's get it back down to two minutes. And and John muttered under his breath, I hate this song anyway. Thank <laughs> bloody Bloody hell, thank yeah. God. <laughs> Can we cut two more verses? <laughs> so that's one thing that's new that's that's out this week, uh, and I think we're all really glad to see it. Yeah, yeah, and maybe we'll hear more soon. The whole BBC experience, you know, the way they grew in it, uh, is is such a great story. That's is not has no real part in the American appreciation of the Beatles because their whole development and and playing all these songs that really the kids of England had didn't know, you know, that really changed uh, the view of music in, in Britain and the whole BBC thing never happened here. Well, and, and, you know, we never heard any of that until, you know, really until uh, the bootlegs in the, and not even the early bootlegs. It took until the the mid to late seventies before we started hearing anything of the BBC shows. Right, but but it was an integral part of of the British Beatle experience. Well, know. that's why I think Apple has to find. You know, they've got even they've got literally the highest quality copy of these tapes and these are not you know they could release a box and and i do wish they would do that but they've got to find some way to get these out to the public you know the the live of the bbc albums one and two and the handful of other tracks on on anthology and other places you know it's great people get to hear some of this stuff but you lose the context completely yeah yeah be nice to hear the shows and even chronologically, you know. Um, well, and, and that's uh, that is that is Lord Reese's current project. He's uh, about three quarters of the way through releasing uh, currently everything in the BBC, everything from that the Beatles did on the BBC from '62 to '70. Wow, that it's on the order of twenty-five discs worth of material. <laughs> Wow. So it's, and it's all chronological, and it's it's all sort of nicely put together, and it, it includes continuity and you know more or less everything you could possibly want. I'm gonna have to get a second job. Well, but it's free. <laughs> he's putting he's putting it out there for free. All you need is the disk space. Yeah, that's true. Hmm. So. Uh, again, if you if you're out there looking for the uh, for for 
his copy, the executive version of the Live at the Star Club. You can also look for the 2021 version of the BBC sets. Uh, the the version which is coming or the volume which is coming out next week, which will include this update with the eight minutes, will be uh, volume 19, I believe. Wow! So he's almost done with with the, his rework of the series. Right. Hmm. Well, good on him. All right. Great. So, kind of, kind of, kind of a multi-topic show. Although we uh, we we did mostly hit the the female all stars, uh, <laughs> and I think we came up with some good choices there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I go see that band for sure. Not that it's going to happen, and and not that it matters, but but hey, it's our show. Right. Right. All right. Great. Thanks, everybody. We'll be back next week with a new show. With more stuff. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. Peace and love, everybody. Ringo here, just updating what's going on. And, you know, surprise, surprise, the book came out, 30 years of the old stars, sell out. But it will be back on the market weeks from now. I think we're going to have some guests. And all the proceeds go to the Lotus Foundation. What would you do if I sang out a tune? Would you stand up? And walk out on me. And uh, you can all go to the website and, if you want, buy it. Uh, there'll be no touring this year, but I'm making another EP for October. So there's this EP coming out, and another one. So I get a chance to hit my drums and paint a bit and go to the gym. And that's what I'm doing. I've had two shots, so I feel groovy. Peace and love, peace and love, peace and love. Zoom in, zoom out. Free. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals. But they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but the scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned out nice again.